for the past four weeks and for this week and including the next two, we are looking at a sermon series called Standing On. It was Malcolm Muggeridge who said, if we stand for everything, we stand for nothing. And it was clear to us as a staff and with this church that we needed to be more aware of those tenets of our faith that we do stand on, like a rock, do do not shift underneath our feet. The first Sunday we looked at the standing on community and tradition, the fellowship of believers that bring us together that have come before us. Then we looked at the providence of God and the authority of Scripture and the sovereignty of God. Today, we're standing on the law of love. It comes to us from the gospel according to Mark. It's in the other two synoptic gospels of Matthew and Luke. It is a story about Jesus lifting up to those who ask the question, what is the meaning of life? An answer. And that answer is made clear in this text. May God give us an understanding of this word. Jesus has entered the temple in Jerusalem as a Pharisee, that is, as a teacher, and he's teaching in the temple, and the temple police are not happy with what he is teaching and that he is teaching at all, and so they are questioning him, trying to trap him in heresy. After several questions that Jesus answers correctly, really in a way that put the teachers uh, in their place, but only in the way Jesus could, a scribe walks up to him. A scribe was a lawyer that kept the law of the temple. A scribe walked up to Jesus and sincerely entered into a conversation. Here now, this conversation, according to Mark chapter 12, verses 38 through 34. One of the scribes came near and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that Jesus answered them well, he asked him, Which commandment is the first of all? Jesus answered, The first is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There are no other commandments greater than these. Then the scribe said to him, you're right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and besides him there is no other. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself, this is much more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices of worship. When Jesus saw that the, that the man answered wisely, he said to him, You're not far from the kingdom of God. After that, no one dared to ask him a question. This is the word of the Lord. Every time I perform, officiate at a wedding in this church, I begin with the same words, those words that we lifted up in our call to worship. God is love. 
And those who abide in love abide in God, and God abides in them. I like to use this opening because it reminds us, first, that whatever love we have between each other, especially in marriage but in every case, is not so much romantically linked as it is a love of self-giving, covenant-making, where we give ourselves to each other no matter what. In that marriage relationship, it's less about romance, as I said, and more about the power of God and God's love for us. It's this kind of love, this unconditional, self-giving, sacrificial love that actually holds us together in our marriages or in our relationships, period. These words happen to come from the first letter of John. It's a love letter, really, to the world, uh, and it, these words come right after these particular words that I think are equally as important. The writer of John says, Beloved, let us love one another because love is from God. It's pretty simple. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. Beloved, since God loved us so much, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is perfected in us. Which is to say that God is shown through our loving of others. For Christians, love is the fulcrum upon which all things balance. Justice and mercy, judgment and grace, consequences and forgiveness. This is why this morning's passage is so important. After Jesus had been interrogated by the religious authorities, trying to trap him into saying something heretical, this leader steps forward and sincerely asks him a question, really, for all of us. What is the first or greatest commandment. Jesus responded using scripture, specifically from the Old Testament account of the Ten Commandments in Leviticus. It's known as the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul, and even, Jesus adds, all your strength. And then he quotes from Leviticus 18, 19, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's the golden rule. He says it is just like the first. Loving God is just like loving neighbor, and loving neighbor is just like loving God. All of the commandments are understood as being this one, even though he has just spliced the two together. It's the law of love. And it's summed up, love God with all you have and love neighbor as yourself. Mark ends his passage of this interrogation saying that after this comment, no one dared ask Jesus another question. But I got to say that if I ever get to sit down with Jesus, I have a few questions I'd like to try on. Like, if Loving our neighbor in the biblical context is to love those uh, with whom we have contact. 
And in our world, because we have instant contact with everyone and everywhere in the world, does that mean that loving our neighbor means everyone in the whole world? If so, how does one do that? Or how can love be a commandment anyway? Or, and especially, what is love? I mean, truly, what is love? And where in this world can we get it? To be honest, the cynic in me feels that of all the words in the English language, love has become the most corrupted. Thanks to chick flick movies and romance novels, Love has become little more than sentimentality or a deep emotional attachment toward an object of our affection. We love people and we love things. We love animals, houses, success. We love food or spiders if you happen to be an arachnologist. For us, too often, this emotional attachment, this object of our emotions ends up being more about me and my own needs and my own feelings and my own emotions being met than it ends up being about the object of my affections. As long as the love object continues to feed me and to meet all of my emotional needs, then love is fine. But once the attachment needs that I have go unmet, then love dissolves into breakupville. Commitment lasts as long as you are getting your emotional needs met, and in this sense, then it is a deal, a quid pro quo relationship of market enterprise, give and take. I'll meet your needs, you meet my needs, it's all good until... This is not love, it's consumption or acquisition, the free market process, someone or something you want to have to meet your needs. It's the cynic in me. But it is also supported by our materialist and sentimental culture. For this side of things, we usually turn to Hollywood. We're not just cynics, we're also believers. And there is a God part of us that's not cynical. For that, we turn to Scripture. As far as the Bible goes, love means never to have to say you're sorry. Oh, wrong love story. The Bible is the consummate, cosmic, ultimate love story of God's love for us and our willingness or mostly unwillingness to reciprocate it. It's God's love that is the standard of our own love and the standard that we hold up for our own relationships. If we desire another more than ourselves, if, if we desire their goodness and mercy more than we desire our own, that is the way of God's love. It is the golden rule even more. 
This kind of love is the way that God is with us. And when God is with us this way, we are in God and God is in us. And we actually, from time to time and moment to moment, in tiny little ways and tiny little steps, even almost approximate that kind of unconditional love of God. And I think in the best sense of the word, as it still stands, it's symbolically best described as a maternal love. Maternal love is supposed to be like this. An endless, selfless service and giving with nothing expected in return. The fact is, no one, not even the best mother in the world, can love like this. That conscious or not, we all place our own conditions on our children or friends, or spouses, and most times we're not even aware of it. Hear me now, mothers and fathers. None of us are able to love our children unconditionally. Because we're human, and we're sinful, and we're egocentric, and we are who we are. There's been a lot written lately about the tragic trend of suicides in Palo Alto, California, where Stanford and the super smart, high success Silicon Valley seems to rule. Frank Bruno wrote an article about it in uh, the New York Times a couple of weeks ago. And he said that the general consensus is that the pressures from parents and peers to excel academically and athletically are taking their toll on their children's childhood. He quotes Carolyn Walworth, a junior at Palo Alto School, who wrote, As I sit in my room staring at the list of colleges I've resolved to try to get into, trying to determine my odds of getting into each, I can't help but feel desolate. She confessed to panic attacks in class, exhaustion from lack of sleep, and depression from not measuring up to all the AP classes We are not teenagers, she added. We are lifeless bodies in a system that breeds competition, hatred, and discourages teamwork and genuine learning. One parent said, ultimately, we need to change our whole environment. We need to start wanting only the best for our kids without necessarily wanting them to be the best. One Bay Area psychologist says that most mostly the parents use all the right language, but it is nothing more than doublespeak. They say, all I care about is that you're happy. And when the kid walks through the door after school, the first question out of the mother's mouth is, how did you do on your math test today? In the conversation about the suicides, a mother of the Bay Area uh, school there told how little pressure she puts on her teens, then noted by way of an anecdote that she had succeeded. Her daughter, she proudly recounted, was so well-balanced that she decided last year not to go to the best college she got into, but rather the school that best fit her passions. The school was Vassar. In her mother's eyes, Vassar qualified as a second-rate school. Balance this with the other extreme. Children who grow up with very little maternal care at all, either 
their mother is not there for some reason or emotionally not there or working three jobs in order to survive. Whether it's affluence or poverty, the greatest loss for those kids is that they don't have any idea growing up that they are loved just for being. Regardless of how much they produce or don't produce, they have no idea the mirroring love of God to us for just being that which we celebrate at baptism every time we baptize an infant and say, you are a child of God regardless. That's what's tragic. The point is that our kids have become either love for how much output they produce or abandoned. And this is not anywhere close to being the kind of love that God holds forth. And I think, ultimately, whether we name it God or Jesus or whatever, without the power of the Holy Spirit, which is love present, without the power of the Holy Spirit to enter us from time to time and free us to love like God does, we have no idea. Good grades or bad, good behavior or bad, good manners or bad, God loves us with a steadfast love, we say. It's, you can say all you want to about the Greek philia, eros, agape. Go to the Hebrew. The Hebrew is chesed. Chesed. It means, there's there's no English translation. It means, as best we can tell, steadfast love. But it's an onomatopoeia. It is supposed to sound like what it means because it comes from the sound of a she-camel who brays longingly for her calf after the calf has been weaned and taken away. All night long, the she-camel brays in love and longing. That's the word for God's love for us, chesed. It's the way God loved Israel, even though Israel did not reciprocate. It's the way God loves all the world, as we exclaim in Jesus Christ, Even though we had him crucified, we are still loved. In every measure and in every way, the fact is that we are loved not because we measure up, but because we do not. Christ died for us, we say, even though we are still sinners. That God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Then the cross is God's word that we are loved unconditionally. Are we going to live up to that? As humans, the best we can do is approximate it. In this sense, then, biblical love is therefore not so much an emotion as it is a verb, a life force of action for the sake of the other. Whether it is returned or not, it is still freely given. And this is the kind of love Jesus is talking about when he answers the question from the scribe about the first commandment. Love God with all you have and your neighbor as yourself. Did you catch that? This vertical, this is really the evangelical shtick. This vertical relationship between me and God. This this moment of understanding I have been saved and experienced this love of God, this vertical. But it's also tied in to the horizontal. 
Jesus says they're all one commandment. The horizontal is love of neighbor. That stereotypically said the justice social-centered church. And Jesus has just claimed both as being true, both this and this. Without this, there is no this. With this, there has to be that. The Christian and Hebrew faith is grounded in this paradox that we cannot love God alone without loving our neighbor, and that love demands that we work for justice for our neighbors, which means to do to them as we expect them to do to us justice. We hate that word justice these days because that might be the second most corrupted word in the English language. It's now become so politicized and so much a part of the culture wars we can barely even utter it. But the Bible uses it all the time. Justice and righteousness. Because the Bible understands that justice is the institutionalization of the law of love for our neighbors. is how we live out our love. And it demands that every person that we meet be treated as a thou. As a child of God. That every single person is one of God's creatures and therefore must be treated that way. That means they're not an ex- a thing to be used, nor a means to an end. They are our brother or sister. Now, I admit, justice is hard to pin down. And I suspect we both best know it when we see it for what it is not. It is not justice when the bonuses of the Wall Street executives in 2015 were more, get this, the bonuses were more than all of the salaries of every minimum wage worker in the United States. Is it justice when poor people who are expected to pull themselves up to our level start from a much deeper hole? Is it justice when people of color are more prone to being arrested, convicted, and incarcerated than white people? Is it justice when those with wealth have undue influence in our electoral process by virtue of their financial support? Is it justice when we keep increasing the tax credit for private business jets while lowering the safety net for those who barely survive? It is, is it justice when our children receive different amounts of love and affection based on their achievement, birth order, gender, or color of their skin? Is it justice when a person who is capable of working sits on his keister all day long collecting food stamps to trade in for alcohol? It is justice, or is it, when ambulance-chasing lawyers keep filing frivolous lawsuits for victims who know a gold mine when they see it? Is it justice when the courts treat children like adults or show a definite preference for those with means who can afford good legal counsel and appeal after appeal after appeal? The list is legion. As Christians, we have to own up to the reality that there is plenty of injustice in our world which points to the fact that as a rule, 
we must live out the best we can to be just. We can argue all day long about the best way to do it. That's politics. As Christians, we cannot argue that we must do it. For we cannot show the love of God unless we show justice to our neighbors. I'm sort of interested in the last part of this text when Jesus talks to the scribe and he sums him up rather than the scribe summing Jesus up and says, you've, you've, you've got it right. You are almost in the kingdom of God. And, and they dared not ask him any more questions. And, and what interests me about this is Jesus' word almost. You'd think that he's got it intellectually. He just said all the things that are true, love of God and love of neighbor. Why wouldn't he now be in the kingdom of God? You've almost got it, Jesus says. And I think the difference is, for Jesus, is not so much about knowing the answer as it is about doing it. In Hebrew, a word is not understood intellectually. It is understood through your feet. You live it out, its meaning. To know something is to do it. The scribe knew it. The question was, would he do it? It's like someone who studies recipes all month long but never makes a meal and never sits down to eat it. They can tell you how to do it, but they've never done it. To do justice is to love mercy and to walk humbly with our God, says the prophet Micah. That is verb forms. This is what scares me that we have forgotten that. Michael Lane came across an accident on Stockton and Post Street on Thursday morning. Uh, I came into the office and he was all shaken up by it. When he came across it, it was an SUV, I think, uh, suburban maybe, that had been hit by a car that had run a stop sign and the suburban had flipped over. There was a young girl of five in the car flipped over and a mother uh, Michael crawled on his uh, hands and knees to the young girl and got her out of the car and then another woman was trying to help the mother on the other side Michael went over on the other side to help and she was tangled up in a seat belt uh, Michael couldn't get her out until the police came and with a knife cut her out of the seat belt the good news is both are fine the bad news is that Michael and this woman helping were not the only two at the scene there were, Michael said, eight or ten other people standing around with their smartphones videoing the whole thing. Hollywood has made its mark. Love is a verb. Let us bring forth the gifts of our lives and our labors.